All right. Good to see everybody. I know the rest are out Christmas shopping. But uh, we're going to celebrate the greatest gift of all and uh, study His Word tonight. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5, which we started last week technically, but we only got like six words. Um, so let's go back, verse 1, 1 John 5, verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. As we come to 1 John chapter 5, John is starting to wrap things up. And in the first three verses, he, one more time, now remember, a good teacher will use repetition to drive his points or her points into their students' minds and hearts that they remember these things. And so John has been a master of repetition all the way through this epistle. He has continued to repeat certain things coming at them in slightly different ways. But um, here one more time, he um, gives us the test uh, or the criteria for genuine faith. He starts off by telling us that those with saving faith, first of all, believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Then he tells us that those who are really Children of God love the Father and the Son. And the implication from the entire epistle is that true believers love the Father and Son equally in the sense that they are uh, equal along, of course, with the Holy Spirit. They are uh, the same God, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And that's important because there are groups that basically want to put the Father above the Son, and we should honor the Father more than the Son because the Son is a created being, Jehovah's Witnesses teach this, that Jehovah God is Almighty God, and Jesus is a lesser but still mighty God. And, you know, John was dealing with a lot of this heresy uh, in his day. And so he, some of the things that he says, you know, you, you, can, you can tell he's kind of addressing in a roundabout way some of the heretical teachings going on. But, um, you know, those who really are born of the Spirit are not going to say that the Father is greater than the Son. Well, didn't Jesus say that? The Father is greater than me? Yes, because Jesus had placed himself under the Father's authority when he became a man. He came down, left his exalted throne in heaven, came down, took the form of, of a humble servant, and went to the cross. But in essence and being, Father, Son, Holy Spirit are all equal. They are together the same God. One God in three persons. Now, of course, for Jesus' mission, he voluntarily placed himself under his Father's authority. So yes, in that regard, the Father was greater. But we're talking about essence and being now. And John is implying that those who are really children of God love the Father and the Son, because they recognize that together they are the same God. Building on that thought, John then proceeds to tell us that true children of God not only love the Father and Son, but listen, they will always love other Christians. And not just those in 
you know, some of you say, well, I love Christians. Uh, yeah, but do you love all Christians? Well, I love those in my group, in my denomination. Well, see, now that's more along the lines of the Pharisees. The Pharisees hated everybody but themselves, okay? And there are folks that, you know, they're really big on their little group or their denomination, but pretty much everybody else uh, they look down on, okay? And um, that's always a problem because John is saying, look, if you're really children of God, uh, not only are you going to love the Father and the Son, you're going to love Christians, all Christians, because all, all of us have the same spirit within us that has bound us together as one body. And if you're really saved, you understand that, okay, is John's point. And then he ends by saying that the final mark of a true Christian is that they prove they know and love God by keeping, or at least seriously trying to keep, His commandments. To which he then adds at the end of verse 3, and His commandments are not burdensome. Now by saying this, John could be saying one of two things, or both. First of all, that keeping God's commandments are not a burden for true children of God, because God the Spirit lives in us and has written God's commandments on our hearts. And therefore, keeping God's commandments are now a joy and not a burden. Is that one of the big things that, as you examine your life before Christ and now that you are saved, isn't that one of the big things that you can look at and go, wow, uh, before we got saved, I really did. I mean, I knew the Ten Commandments. I didn't really, it wasn't really my goal to keep them, <laughs> you know. Uh, if I happened to do it accidentally, praise God, I'm a nice guy. But uh, that wasn't my goal. And uh, But now that I'm saved, my goodness, that's all I want to do is, is honor God by doing what He has said, keeping His commandments and so on. I mean, John is rightly pointing out that is a mark of a genuine believer. Uh, you know, where you have unbelievers who are religious and will try to keep God's commandments, Christians now, or uh, those that belong to Christian uh, denominations that are not saved but religious, church-going, uh, often they will try to keep the commandments because they know that, in their minds, that earns them a place in heaven. But it's not a joy, it's a burden, but not when you're a true child of God. And um, so that, that's just something that John is stressing here. Now, he could also be saying that... Um, God's commandments are not a heavy burden for God's true children to bear because the Holy Spirit lives inside of us and gives us the power to obey all that God has commanded. Uh, this Christian life is a supernatural life, as people have pointed out, and uh, it's a supernatural life. We cannot live it in the power of our own strength or uh, the strength of our flesh. Uh, it, is, it is a supernatural life that we live in the power of the Spirit of God. And as long as we are walking with the Lord and abiding in Him, the power to live the life He's called us to live is there for us. And uh, it's, uh, it's something that we sometimes feel God is just... I mean, have you ever felt, and this isn't, just doesn't apply to keeping commandments, uh, just in your service for Him. Have you ever felt like God was just act, literally carrying you through your day, carrying you through all the things that you needed to do, and... There have been many times where I've had so many things I had to, to do, and I just prayed for God to give grace. And at the end of the day, I couldn't even believe what I had accomplished by His strength. And, and that goes for every area of the Christian life. 
Now, I think in part, when John talks about God's commandments being uh, are not a burden to those of us who know God, I think in part, when he said this, he had in, had in mind the Judaizers and others that were still trying to lay the heavy burden of the law on people for salvation. That was a practice that Jesus condemned during his earthly ministry. Of course, you remember that Paul dealt with the Judaizers quite a bit. What were they? Who were they? Well, um, they were Pharisees and probably some others who were very zealous for the law. And then supposedly, and I really would question whether they were genuinely saved, but um, they did come to believe Jesus was Messiah and Savior. But instead of jettisoning the old covenant, the law, and just moving completely into the new covenant uh, of grace and all, they tried to blend the two together because they weren't really ready to let go of all the works that they had put so much effort in keeping these laws, and they wanted to kind of to merge them together. So they began to, and what happened was when Paul would go into an area, preach the gospel, a church was started, uh, people got saved by grace and all, then as Paul would leave, the Judaizers would come in, and they would basically tell the people that Paul had just ministered to, look, you can't, you can't go by what Paul is saying. He, he wasn't even one of the 12 apostles. He calls himself an apostle, but he wasn't one of the 12. Now look, you, you got to believe in Jesus. That's true. But you first have to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. Then you can believe on Christ for salvation. Now you can read the book of Galatians, because Paul came out against this practice, this teaching, very heavily. He was really furious that they were teaching this. In fact, this is what led to the first church council in Acts 15. Paul had confronted some, and Barnabas confronted some of these Judaizers and really took them to task about how they were continuing to teach law as a way of getting saved and then trying to then add faith to it. And Paul, you can read the book, and Paul says, look, uh, you know, either you're saved by grace or you're saved by works. But you can't save by, by a system that is faith plus works. doesn't work that way, okay? But Jesus dealt with this too. And um, he, he dealt with those people, and mostly Pharisees, who uh, were very zealous for the law. And they were always heaping heavy burdens uh, onto people. Uh, so heavy that the people, we'll talk about this more in a second, so heavy, all these laws, regulations, and so on, were so heavy, and they would just pour uh, these things onto people so that people lost heart of ever being saved because they could never live up to all those laws and all those regulations, right? And Jesus took them, to, he indicted them. He really, uh, he really uh, condemned them for this. You can read about it in Luke eleven forty six. But he said to the Pharisees, woe unto you, you guys who uh, lay heavy burdens on people that you yourselves are not willing to, to bear with one of your fingers. Sure, it's easy for them to dump on everybody else, but they didn't intend to live that way, you know. As we have said in earlier studies, the law of God given to Israel through Moses contains 613 commandments. So many that most Jews gave up even trying to remember them all, let alone keep them. And then when you realize that the rabbis added pages and pages of further regulations and rules that related to the keeping of each of these 613 main laws, such as the Sabbath alone, eventually uh, contained 24 chapters in the Talmud 
of all these regulations about what constituted Sabbath rest and what the people could do and could not do. Think about that. One law, 24 chapters of things you had to do to keep it. And you had to know those chapters. So you can see that <laughs> you can begin to realize what a burden uh, it was for the Jewish people to try to keep God's commandments, especially since uh, the rabbis and the doctors and lawyers of the law and Pharisees and so on were just laying on them all these other rules and regulations and so on. So people got pretty discouraged. Well, even the leaders, uh, and again, these uh, lawyers, uh, these were the scholars of the law, uh, even they began to realize it was too much for people. They were losing people. People weren't coming, they weren't following them anymore because it was like hopeless. Why, why follow a rabbi if he's going to just lay on me hopeless, uh, uh, you know, uh, things that I can't keep? And so they began to modify a little bit these, these experts of the law. They divided the commandments into what they called heavy and then light. The heavy were the important commandments, and the light were the, I don't know, I guess unimportant or inconsequential. And they began to teach that a person could major on the heavy commandments and not worry about the trivial ones. In other words, you know, just deal with the important stuff and don't worry about any of the smaller. God doesn't care about the smaller commandments. Sounds like today, doesn't it? I mean, sounds like people today who say, well, you know, I don't. Murder. I have not murdered anybody. I've not robbed a bank. Uh, I haven't committed adultery, although that's been kind of removed from that list because today so many people are committing adultery and justifying it. So pretty much I haven't murdered anybody. So I'm, I'm pretty good, you know. And therefore God doesn't care about all the other stuff, with the white lies and different things and so on, cheating on my income tax and, and sleep with my boyfriend or girlfriend because we love each other, that kind of thing. The fallacy behind that approach is obvious to us who are evangelical Christians. And that is the Bible says you need only break one law. It doesn't matter if it's heavy or light. You only have to break one of God's laws to be guilty before God. Even as James said in chapter 2, verse 10, whoever, whoever shall keep the whole law and yet break one commandment, he is guilty of violating all. He's a lawbreaker. In God's eyes, it doesn't matter how many commandments you break uh, when it comes to salvation. Uh, either you keep them all or, you know, you're done and you are condemned. And so this idea that people say, well, I know I'm not perfect, but I think I'm good enough to get to heaven. They need to read the scriptures because if you're not perfect, you're not good enough to get to heaven. Well, what are you talking about? I mean, nobody's perfect. Well, that's true, uh, but there was one man who did live a perfect life, the Lord Jesus Christ, and um, we'll talk about this in a second, but the idea being that, you know, God requires perfection to get to heaven, and the only way we can be perfect is if we're in Christ, if we're believers, right? Um, well, let me just say, in Jesus' day, there was a running debate among the scholars of the law. And they would debate all the time about which of the 613 commandments was the greatest commandment of them all. Turn to Matthew 22.
course, you know it. Starting at verse 36. They came to Jesus one day. They wanted to hear what he had to say, you know, because they were always debating and arguing what was the greatest of the commandments of God. And so verse 36, they came and said to Jesus, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, this was, I think, a lawyer or a Pharisee, um, you shall, the greatest is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. The, the Greek is this is the supreme commandment of all. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And so Jesus took 613 commandments and condensed them down to just two. Now think about that, all right? Uh, if you're a Jew and you are have been, you know, so condemned feeling because you can't even memorize 613 commandments, let alone keep them, and now Jesus whittles it down to just two, condenses all of that down to two, uh, that in itself took much of the burden of the law away from them and made keeping just two commandments uh, much easier to remember and easier to keep, and um, which might have been what Jesus had in mind then when he said in Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, some would say, well, he was talking about how he had just condensed 613 commandments down to two. That really lightened the load. Okay, that was the, the, the light yoke that Jesus was now putting on the Jewish people. Uh, I don't really buy that interpretation. I, I believe what Jesus was saying is he was contrasting the new covenant with the old covenant. He knew in the Old Covenant all these laws were a heavy burden on people. And he knew that they could not keep these laws. In fact, God never intended for them to keep all those laws for righteousness. Paul tells us later on, who was a Jewish rabbi and scholar himself, he said the purpose of the law was to show us that we couldn't keep all those laws. There's no way we could keep those laws for righteousness, never breaking one a single time. And what that would do, Paul said, it would drive us to God for another way to be saved. I can't keep this way, Lord. Is there another way that I can come to you and have eternal life? And of course, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, nobody comes to the Father except through me. And I believe that was the yoke he was talking about. It wasn't the yoke of two commandments as opposed to 613. It was faith. I know you can't keep all these laws that the Pharisees and all have God's laws, but then they've embellished them and added regulations and rules to them. You can't keep all those commandments. Come to me. My yoke is easy. What is it? Faith. It's easy because anybody can believe. It's, therefore, anybody, as Paul would go on to say, anybody can therefore be saved. Paul uh, developed all of this in his writings, but uh, he, uh, what he was saying is he was picking up where Jesus left off and was saying, look, um, there is a righteousness that comes from God, and we don't earn it. 
It has to be given to us. And it is given to us. It's the righteousness of Christ, which is given to us by our faith, through our faith. Turn to Romans 3. Because this is what Jesus said, that if a person would believe in him and receive him as their Savior and God, their faith in him would allow God to declare them righteous. And Paul picks up on this and says in Romans 3, verses 21 and 2, But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. It was revealed in Christ. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. In other words, when it comes to salvation, there's no difference. I mean, you're Jew, Gentile, you keep the law, you don't keep the law. To get into heaven, you simply have to believe on Jesus Christ. That levels the playing field, right? Because think about it. The, Pharise the Jews had a saying, we've talked about this, because they believed the Pharisees and the scribes were so holy, so righteous, you know, that's what the impression they gave people. Jesus knew better. So holy and so righteous, the Jews had a saying that if only two people made it into heaven, one would be a Pharisee, the other would be a scribe. And Paul said, look, uh, when it comes to salvation by grace through faith, we're all equal, okay? I mean, Pharisees, scribes... It doesn't matter if you're, uh, you know, again, the greatest scholar in Israel or the lowliest peasant. It doesn't matter. We can all get to God. This, we all get to God the same way, by faith. So there's no difference. Now, as Christians, guys, we don't keep God's commandments. And we do keep them. But we don't keep them for salvation. We keep them, first of all, because we love God's commandments. Didn't Paul say that in Romans 7.22? He said, in the inner man, I love the law of God. Now, uh, there's, uh, you know, there are, you know, my flesh fights against my love for God's commandments. And uh, there's a war going on inside of me so that I, I don't always do what I want to do. But I know in my inner man, and, and this is something every born again Christian knows. In our inner man, right, uh, the new nature we've received when we accepted Christ. Uh, we love God's word. We love God's laws. We know it's the right way to live. We, we didn't know it maybe before we got saved. But once we received Christ, everything changed. And we, we now realize that this is the way to live, the only way to live, that God's commandments weren't given by God to, uh, to steal joy and happiness. It was, they were given to protect us from heartache, uh, to keep us walking on a path that would keep us uh, free of a lot of the consequences that sin would bring into our life, sometimes very severe consequences. And uh, so we love God's law. And that's, again, uh, a, an evidence that we are born again. We have a new nature, Seven, Romans 7.22. But we also keep God's commandments because we love our Heavenly Father. And we want to please Him. And uh, so we, we keep... God's commandments because we know it honors the Lord, it, it, uh, it uh, blesses Him, but also it causes our light to shine. People see we're different, you know. You, you don't have to say a word, just live for God and uh, 
watch people come to you and say, what, what's different about you? And then you can use the opportunity to say, well, I'm a Christian. I've received Christ. And he's given me a whole new heart, a new way of looking at things. And wow, before I got saved, I was into the drugs, the alcohol, sleeping around. But I don't do anything anymore. Not because I, I want to but can't, because I don't even want to. Uh, that's not my heart anymore. It's intriguing for people to hear something like that because a lot of them, they know their lives are crashing and burning every day because they are in bondage to certain things. They, some of them would like to be free, but they have no power. That's where the Holy Spirit comes in when you get saved, right? But, uh, but we keep God's commandments in part because we want to see people drawn to the light and, and saved. Now, 1 John 5, 4. For whoever is born of God overcomes the world. Now, John is giving us some criteria by which we can know if we're really saved. We're really children of God. And in verse 4, he says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Now, let me stop here for a minute and talk briefly about overcomers and overcoming the world. As you know, John the Apostle wrote both 1 John and the book of Revelation. He also wrote the Gospel of John and 2nd and 3rd John, but I want to compare these two books, okay? We know he wrote 1 John, and also he wrote the book of Revelation. And in both of these, he mentions overcomers. But it's his comments on overcomers in Revelation that has caused a great deal of stress, anxiety, and hand-wringing over the years by those believers who struggle with different sins in their lives. Let me give you an example. In fact, I'll have you turn to these. We've got a little time. Revelation 2. You might want to mark these. I'm not sure, but you might want to. It's a pretty important subject. Um, and John makes it a point to say, whoever is truly born of God, truly saved, overcomes the world. If I'm not overcoming the world, does that mean I'm not saved? Is the thinking. Okay, well, let's read what, uh, first of all, Jesus said these first three, and then the Father seems to have said the last one, but Revelation 2.26, Jesus said, And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. In other words, he will be a part of my kingdom, and he will be ruling in my kingdom, as God has promised those who are faithful and all. So the idea is if I don't overcome, and I'm not faithful to the end, and so on, uh, I'm not going to be a part of his kingdom. That's kind of frightening. Revelation 3, verse 5. Jesus said, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. And again, see how important the concept of overcoming seems to be. Okay? It seems to be contingent upon being clothed in garments of white and uh, not having your name blotted out of the book of life and having God confess your name before the angels of heaven and so on. Revelation 3, verse 12. Jesus again says, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the, in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. And I will write on him the name of my God in the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. And then finally, in Revelation 21, verse 
7, it seems the Father is speaking this promise. Revelation 21, verse 7, He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. And again, guys, in all these passages, John is recording the words of Jesus and the Father, who both seem to be saying that overcoming the world is essential for living with God in heaven. And again, that terrifies those who haven't overcome their flesh when it comes to things like alcohol, drugs, pornography, and, and the world in general. So a lot of Christians who are worldly. They, they still love the world in some ways, okay? Now, here's the thing. Back in chapter 2, verse 15, John says, Don't love the world, uh, nor the things of the world, for anyone who loves the world, what? The love of the Father is not in him. That seems to be saying to me that they're not saved if they really love the world. Now, can a person be saved and maybe love the world still a little bit, somewhat? Yeah, I think that's the definition of a carnal Christian. And I believe that there are such, some people would argue with me, but I believe, based on 1 Corinthians chapters 2 and 3, as Paul talks about the natural man, the spiritual man, and the carnal man. If you study those passages carefully, you'll notice that the natural man is an unbeliever, the spiritual man is an unfire, spirit-filled child of God. Who's the carnal man? Well, if you study the passage, Paul calls them brethren, says that they had all the gifts of the Holy Spirit in their church. He called the Christians there in Corinth uh, carnal. And, uh, and I believe that uh, he was talking to a group of people that were saved and yet still very worldly. Uh, you can be a Christian and be carnal. Now, I hope that doesn't uh, put anyone at ease. Oh, good. Uh, I'm carnal and... Uh, Praise God, I'm still a Christian. Um, no, that's not the goal of the Christian life, to see how carnal you can be uh, over the course. You see how spiritual you can be, how close you can draw to the Lord is the idea. But I, I just wanted to say that there are those who will read these, uh, this verse, uh, well, these verses, and then, of course, back in 1 John 5, verse 4, and they will begin to think that, you know, uh, what Jesus and the Father are saying is that overcoming uh, is essential for entrance into heaven. Now, of course, the problem with that is it would make eternal life in heaven a reward to be earned and not a gift to be received. And that is the whole basis for the new covenant. Uh, in Jesus' blood, we receive heaven, eternal life, by our faith in him not by what we do or don't do. Kind of a dilemma, and for some, a terrifying dilemma. Okay, how do we resolve it? Well, just keep reading. Just keep reading. First uh, John 5, 4, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world. What? Our faith. John said, Who is he who overcomes the world? but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, the reason I have kind of um, elaborated on this for a little bit is because over the years, I have had Christians come to me terrified because 
they would read a passage out of Revelation which talks about overcomers and how those that overcome inherit eternal life in heaven and are clothed in white garment, have their name you know, not blotted out of the book of life and so on. And they look at their lives. Of course, Satan helps to condemn them. But they look at uh, how they're falling short of overcoming alcohol or drugs or something else. And they, they now are prone to believe that, you know, they're lost. They're not even saved. And they're on their way to hell. And I've had to show them, but wait a minute. Who, how, who is the person who overcomes the world? Look at 1 John 5, 4 and 5. It's the person who has faith in Christ. Every Christian, true Christian, has overcome the world. That victory began the moment you received Jesus Christ into your heart as your Lord and Savior by faith. You exercise what the theologians call saving faith. The faith that brought you into a relationship and allowed the Spirit of God to place you in Christ. Just by virtue of being in Christ, guess what? We win. We're victorious. It's really a fallacy to pray, God, give me more power. Not that I'm saying we shouldn't, but I want you to see it from this point of view. Really, when you think about it, we don't technically need to ask God for more power more strength, to be more victorious. If you're in Christ, which means you're a genuine Christian, he already vanquished principalities and powers. He has already won the battle. And because you and I are in him, we are victorious in him. It's all So what we should really be praying for is, God, help me to draw closer to Jesus. Help me to abide in my Savior longer. Because the more I abide in Christ, the more the power of the Spirit flows into my life by virtue of my connection with Christ. And that's where the victory lies. It's ours. The reason that so many Christians are defeated and are not more than conquerors is because they are not drawing close to Jesus. I don't know what's going on, but they're trying in their own strength maybe to have victory over certain besetting sins. And the Bible is clear. Victory is in Christ who already won the battle. Vanquished principalities and powers on Calvary's cross and by rising from the dead. And we, if we are in him, therefore, the victory is ours. We just have to draw close to him and let him live his life through us more and more by the power of his spirit each and every day. Very important point. Victory in the Christian life starts the moment you receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. And we are then, we begin to see now victory over the three very powerful enemies we face on a daily basis. What are they? The world, the flesh, and the devil. Those are the three enemies that we face on a daily basis. And um, the moment you gave your heart to Christ, you were born again. Uh, John 3, verses 3 and 7. At that instant, the Holy Spirit moved in and gave to us the nature of God. 2 Peter 1 verse 4 tells us, and along with the nature of God, the power that we need to be victorious in the Christian life. Now, guys, that's not where faith ends. That's where everything begins, saving faith and receiving Christ. If we want to walk in practical victory over the three enemies we just mentioned every day, that takes continual faith. 
a daily walk of faith in Jesus to live his life through us by the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. Turn to Galatians 2. Of course, you all know this. It's a classic verse on this very subject. Paul said in verse 20, Galatians 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by what? Faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is a supernatural life that we are living. And the Spirit is in us. That's what makes it supernatural. But the power of the Spirit flows through our faith. Faith is the conduit. Uh, somebody has likened it to the umbilical cord that connects us to God and allows the life of God to flow from Him, him into our lives. Faith is the conduit, though, right? And it's interesting that three times in the New Testament, in Romans 1, verse 17, Galatians 3, verse 11, and in Hebrews 10, verse 38, Paul, and I believe Paul wrote all three of those epistles, Paul tells us, the just shall what? Live. The just means the saved shall now live by faith. We don't exercise saving faith where we get saved, and that's pretty much the end of faith. That's just the beginning now. And now we have to walk in faith. In what faith? In the faith that Jesus Christ, through the Spirit, will live his life through us to overcome any bondage, any area of weakness, any shortcoming, any bad habit, the cigarettes, the alcohol, pornography, bad temper, we'll say, uh, fear, anxiety. Whatever it is we are facing, the power of God is greater. The power of God is greater. The just shall live now by faith. And that's, of course, quoting Habakkuk 2, verse 4. Uh, a word of caution. The kind of faith that John says saves and overcomes the world, saves us and overcomes the world, isn't mere, you know, head knowledge or what we call passive faith in facts. Satan and his demons believe the facts about Jesus. We've talked about that. They're not saved. So a lot of people, myself included, before I got saved, I believed all the, all the facts about Christ, uh, who he was and what he did, and Son of God died for my sins, rose. I believe all of that, but I wasn't saved because it was just head knowledge, okay? It wasn't the kind of faith where I gave my heart to Jesus, made a commitment to him. Uh, this kind of faith is what Spurgeon was trying to... Um, uh, admonish us to understand. When he said, and I quote, look at any Greek lexicon you like, and you will find that the word faith or believe does not merely mean to believe, but to trust, to confide in, to commit to, in trust with, and so forth. The very marrow of the meaning of faith is confidence in and reliance upon, end quote. And of course, he's talking about Jesus Christ, faith in Jesus, reliance upon the Spirit of God to live the life of Christ through us. Now, now let me just say this. We have two very powerful um, sources 
for victory. The Spirit of God is, of course, the, the, the power. But we access that power through two primary channels. Of course, faith we just spoke of. The other, of course, is the Word of God. The Word of God. They go hand in hand when it comes to us having victory over the enemy. 1 John 2, verse 14, the end of the verse. John said, I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the Word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. And of course, that would apply to the girls too. Our strength in the Christian life, our victory will be directly proportionate to how much of God's Word we fill ourselves with on a daily basis, pretty much. Again, I think it was Spurgeon who said that if you want to be a victorious child of God, uh, the Word of God must be like your lifeblood. Your blood, he said, must be bibbling. I mean, but we understand what he was saying. I mean, just like blood is essential, it flows through us and keeps us alive, so the Word of God is the same way. It has to be a part of us. Uh, one, of the, one great Bible teacher, Donald Gray Barnhouse, phenomenal man of God, and one day a young man uh, was reading a magazine, a Christian pastor, and saw Barnhouse come, sit down on uh, a seat uh, uh, across from him, and opened up his Bible, and the young pastor was over come with because he, he loved Barnhouse and admired him and he said to Barnhouse he said Dr. Barnhouse I would give anything to teach the Bible like you and Barnhouse looked at him and said son that's exactly what it will take you giving up everything and you can start by putting away that magazine and getting your Bible out when a Christian throws their Bible onto the table it should automatically open up to Romans 6, 7, or 8. That, he believed, was the heart of the New Testament. And very true, it is. The Word of God, though, can't underscore enough how vital it is for us to have victory. Uh, Psalm 119, verse 11. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you, that I might have victory over the flesh, right? All right, uh, turn back to 1 John 5. And let's start with verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not only by water, but by water and blood. It is and it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these agree as one. These uh, verses contain some of the most controversial and hotly debated scriptures that you will find in the New Testament. And they have led to a variety of interpretations. Uh, let's start looking at this passage tonight. And then we'll come back after the first of the year, because we'll be off now for the next two weeks. We'll come back after the first of the year, and we will uh, pick up where we left off and finish looking at this passage. But uh, understand, first of all, what John is presenting in these verses and why. He is telling us how we can know that Jesus is really the Son of God, 
and Savior of the world based on the testimony of three powerful witnesses. Now, before we look at what they are, why did John feel the need to bring three powerful witnesses to the stand, quote-unquote, as if he was trying to prove a case in a court of law? Why did he feel the need to bring three powerful witnesses to the stand to testify and confirm that Jesus Christ was, in fact, who he claimed to be? It was because many of the Jewish people still didn't believe that Jesus was their Messiah and Savior, let alone the Son of God. And the reason for this was because during his earthly ministry, Jesus' earthly ministry, many, I, I would actually say most, of the Jewish religious leaders had rejected him, had rejected him completely, and um, went as far as the claim that not only was he not the Messiah and the Son of God, he was at very least a liar, very possibly uh you know, he was a lunatic, that he was crazy. That was a charge that they made against him several times. And at worst, and, you know, good possibility, he was demon-possessed. So that, that's where they were coming from. Now, when your religious leaders say that about someone, uh, men of God that you respect as religious leaders, there's a tendency to believe these people. So a lot of Jews believed their leaders and rejected Jesus Christ because their leaders did. In fact, to this very day, if you uh, come across an Orthodox Jewish uh, man or woman and, uh, you know, you, you ask them, God leads, you ask them, well, why is it that you don't believe that Jesus Christ is your Messiah? Uh, one of the things they will tell you, they've got several reasons. One of the things they will tell you is this. Because if he was really the Messiah, our leaders would have known it. And they rejected him, so he couldn't be our Messiah, because they would have known. Even though Jesus himself called those very leaders blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into the ditch. And so John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wants to call into evidence the testimony of three witnesses that he presents in the closing verses of this epistle. Look at verses 7 and 8. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. Now, if you're reading from any other translation other than the King James Version or the New King James Version, your Bible reads along these lines. I'll read the out of the ESV. For there, this is verse 7, For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. The Holman Christian Standard, and these two are indicative of all the other modern translations. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three are in agreement. What is missing is the end of verse 7 and the beginning of verse 8, which basically tells us that there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And then the first part of verse 8 is also removed, and there are three that bear witness on earth, and they just take the beginning of verse 7 and, and, and connected to 
the end of verse 8. And that's what you got if you are reading from any other version uh, than the King James or New King James. Why do they do this? Why, why are these words missing in most of the modern translations? Well, come back next time. We'll talk about it. Not going to spend a lot of time on it, but I will tell you why those verses are missing. Okay, those uh, words are missing from those two verses. And a lot of Christians are very upset by that because uh, verse 7, you know, there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. Are It's a great verse to prove the Trinity with. But hang on. We will talk about it when we uh, come into the new year. But for the remainder of our time tonight, Let's just focus on the three witnesses that all the translations of the New Testament include, starting with verse 6, where John says, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. Now, guys, there has been an awful lot of debate and speculation over the years among the scholars as to what John is referring to when he said the water and the blood were witnesses of Jesus Christ being the Son of God and that Jesus Christ, listen, came by water and blood. One scholar said this, <laughs> I'm glad he said it, because he's no doubt a lot smarter than me, okay? But one scholar said, this is the most perplexing passage in the epistle and one of the most perplexing in the New Testament. I'll give you, and again, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. I mean, I just cannot pass over something like this without at least trying to give you a working understanding of what, what people think John means and, and maybe what, well, what I believe he's actually saying. And I could be wrong, okay? But um, I'll give you some of the interpretations that scholars and church leaders down through the centuries believe John was referring to when he talked about how Jesus came by water and blood. And remember, the context is these things are bearing witness of who he is. One pastor and author summed it up well. Let me just quote from him. He said, uh, first of all, some believe that water speaks of our own baptism and blood speaks of receiving communion and that John writes of how Jesus comes to us in the two Christian sacraments of baptism and communion. He said Luther and Calvin believe this. That was their idea of what John was saying. Yet, if this is the case, it doesn't add up with the historical perspective John had when he wrote, came by water and blood. He seems to write of something that happened in the past and not something that is ongoing among Christians in the present. In other words, being baptized and, key, and, and, and keeping communion, or, or having communion, okay, uh, and so on. Others, he said, such as Augustine, believed the, believed the water and blood describes the water and blood which flowed from Jesus' side when, remember, he was on the cross 
and he had dismissed his spirit. He was dead, uh, but they wanted to make sure. So one of the soldiers that was standing by the took his spear and thrust it into Jesus' side. And we read in John 19, verse 34, uh, immediately blood and water came out. And so there are those that believe that that's what uh, John meant. And, and one of the reasons they believe this is because that event was very significant. It really impacted him. Uh, the fact that this uh, Roman soldier thrust a spear into Jesus' side and water and blood came out. The author says uh, it was an important event of the Apostle John because immediately after that, this description of water and blood, he added in his gospel, quoting John, and he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth. I, I was there, John said. I'm telling you this, and I know it's true because I saw it, is what he's saying. And I'm telling you this, the truth, so that you may believe, John 19.35. The author says, yet if this was John's meaning, uh, the spear thrust into Jesus' side and the water and blood coming out, uh, it's a little unclear how it can be said that Jesus came by water and blood. Or, and let me add, how it proves Jesus' deity. It proves he died on the cross. It doesn't prove he was the Son of God uh, because the spear was thrust in and water and blood came out. Number three, the author says, still others believe the water spoke of Jesus' physical birth being born of the waters of the womb. And we all know that when a baby's inside his mother's womb, uh, the baby is encased in what some call a bag of waters. And when the water breaks, that means the child is about to be born, right? And so, uh, and so some believe that that's what John had in mind when he talked about water. It spoke of Jesus' physical birth, uh, and blood speaks of his death. If this is the case, John would be essentially writing, and now this is what if this is the true interpretation, then John would actually be saying, Jesus was born like a man, and he died like a man. He was completely human, not some super spiritual being who had no real contact with the material world. Now, people believe that this is what John could be saying because John was fighting against Gnosticism in his day. And the Gnostics thought that Jesus was a super spiritual being that was disconnected from the material world because the material world was evil. So Jesus couldn't have been a flesh and blood man. He would have been evil. So he was a spirit, a phantom. We've talked about this, okay? Um, but guys, this would prove his humanity, not his deity, okay? If, if this is what the interpretation was. And again, John's trying to bring three witnesses to bear that would prove, testify to the deity of Jesus Christ and that he is the Son of God. So it's kind of hard to figure out how that would work. The author says probably the best explanation, although some of the other interpretations have some good points, but he said the best explanation is uh, the oldest recorded Christian understanding of this passage, first recorded by the ancient Christian Tertullian. And uh, this is what he believes, and this is what uh, I think is the true uh, interpretation. But the author says, most likely John means the water, reference to the water, was the water of Jesus' baptism and the blood of his crucifixion. He said when Jesus was baptized, remember by John in the Jordan, right? He was not baptized 
in repentance for his own sins because he had none, but because he wanted to completely identify with sinful humanity. When he came by water, it was his way of saying, I am one of you. He was identifying with all of us. He did. Baptism, we, uh, we, uh, you know, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. Uh, prepare your hearts to receive Messiah. Uh, confess your sins, repent. Well, Jesus didn't have to confess any sins or repent for anything. But he still got baptized because he wanted to identify with sinful humanity. Okay? And so that's how he came. And uh, when Jesus died on the cross, he did not die because he had to die in the sense that he was guilty of anything. He did say, no man takes my life from me. I give it freely for the sheep. He was innocent, of course, and, uh, and all. But he laid down his life, the author says, to identify with sinful humanity and to save us from our sin. When he came by blood, it was so that he could stand in our place as a guilty sinner, even though he was innocent, and, take, and to take the punishment our sin deserved. Now, let me just close. The author says, Some back in John's day taught, and by the way, some still teach, that Jesus received the Christ Spirit at his baptism. That's when he became divine. He wasn't divine up until that point. This was a heresy that John dealt with back in those days, okay? Uh, but uh, some believe that when Jesus was baptized and the Spirit came upon him, that's when he became divine. And then the Christ Spirit left him uh, just before he died on the cross. Because in the minds of these people, it is unthinkable that God could hang on a cross. So they have to explain it away somehow. And so they come up with this kind of esoteric, Eastern mysticism kind of way of talking about the Christ Spirit. Uh, coming upon Jesus and then leaving him. But Jesus himself was not divine, that kind of thing. Um, the author says, But John insisted that Jesus did not that Jesus did not only come by the water of baptism, but also by the blood of the cross. He was just as much the Son of God on the cross as he was when the Father declared, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased at the baptism of Jesus. And now, this is where we get into the witness, right? The testimony, all right? Um, Jesus came to us in the sense of identifying with us in water baptism. That was the water I believe John had in mind because at Jesus' water baptism, you can check out Matthew 3 and the other Gospels, uh, as he come up, came up out of the water, the Spirit of God descended upon him, anointing him for the ministry now, and the Father said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. You can't get a more powerful witness than the Father himself. And that's what, you know. And then, of course, when Jesus went to the cross, uh, you remember how that, when he died, he dismissed his spirit and died, right? And there were a bunch of things that happened, right? The, the darkness came over the whole land and and it was like an earthquake, and, and so on. And what did the centurion that was standing there say? This truly, this was the Son of God. And so out of the mouths of many different people, God was giving testimony that Jesus Christ was at his baptism, at his death, the fact that he was in fact the Son of God, who we know is the Savior of the world. So let me just say in closing, 
Again, it's best to see the water here as a reference to Christ's baptism and the blood a reference to his death on Calvary's cross. Those two notable events, one pastor said, bracketed the Lord's earthly ministry, and in both of them the Father testified concerning his Son. Now, when we come back after the Christmas break, we will uh, continue looking at this. And again, I'm not going to spend uh, a lot of time on I just wanted to give you what I believe is the correct interpretation, but also bring out some of the confusion and the uh, debates uh, that have gone on, the various interpretations that people have come up with. And, and I see that many of them are rooted in, uh, in biblical passages, uh, but I, I just feel that the water spoke of his baptism and that the blood spoke of his death, and that bracketed those bracketed his earthly ministry, whereas we have been studying in John's gospel. over It wasn't just an isolated incident. It was the hallmark of his ministry to go everywhere proclaiming that he was the Son of God, equal with the Father, the great I Am. That was the hallmark of his ministry. Uh, out of his own... And, 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 and the Pharisees challenged him. You remember in John's gospel how they indicted him, how they condemned him by saying, you know, your testimony of yourself is worthless. Give us testimony, because they're thinking like lawyers. Give us testimony is in a court of law. you got to bring other impartial witnesses. And Jesus said, you're right. My testimony of myself is, is nothing. But I have the Father. I have the Word. I have, you know, and he rattled off all these uh, ways that, uh, you know, read John 5 again. I think it was four witnesses that Jesus brought forth in those verses that testified that he was, in fact, the Son of God. Now, this is important for John because he wants to, to, to see his Jewish brethren come to Christ, and many of them were still not accepting Christ as Messiah. And so in this epistle, he wants to show them once again that there are a lot of testimony, apart from Christ's own words, that, you know, that give witness that he is, in fact, who he claimed to be. And... Uh, so we will continue uh, after the break and uh, then finish out uh, John's epistle. And uh, I got my eye on Revelation. That's coming quick. So uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word and for your spirit who enlightens us with regard to your word. And Lord, give us grace that as we read your word and study your word and meditate on your word, you will open our eyes as the author of the word. Holy Spirit, give us insights. Lead us into all truth as you've promised us, that we might be students of the word, uh, getting the correct interpretation, because a wrong interpretation leads to faulty conclusions and all kinds of other problems. We want to correctly interpret your word, that we can apply it correctly and have the power of the Spirit of God moving uh, in and through our lives for victory and as a witness. So, Father, we thank you. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word in Jesus' name. Amen.